Okay, so uh, before we jump into the lesson here, I just want to mention for those of you that are podcasters that you like to get on to your phones or whatever the case may be and listen to podcasts, we do have a podcast now. Um, so you can go to the iTunes store and put in Faith Baptist Church Orlando and you'll see our little logo there. Uh, currently, we just have our Sunday schools up there. We're working on getting our sermons up there and everything like that. So if you miss a lesson, you can jump on there and, and listen to that. All right, so we're going to continue our study in the doctrine of sin. And as we do so, over the last three weeks, if you've been with us, Will and Pastor Rick have led us through really a mini-series on original sin. That's taken place over the last three weeks, and my task this morning is to conclude this mini-series. And if you've been with us, you probably remember that we've been defining original sin by the answer to question 18 in the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. And uh, so hopefully this will work properly. It's a little too far. Okay. So question 18, if somebody can read that for us, if you wouldn't mind reading the question and the answer. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? Answer. The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want, lack, of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Okay, thanks, Lloyd. All right, so you have the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of original righteousness, which flows from that. We'll look at that a little bit more this morning. And the corruption of his whole nature, which we would obviously say is total depravity. Every aspect of man's being has been affected by being united to Adam, and in his fall we have participated. So when we think about Adam's sin and the result of that sin, some people have asked the question, are there any exceptions? Is there anyone or any group of people that have not been affected by Adam's transgression? And the simple answer to that is no, there are no exceptions. Uh, question and answer 16 from the Westminster Shorter, Cat uh, Shorter Catechism, which you have there on your notes, is helpful in kind of putting this into a, a succinct statement. So if somebody wants to read that for us. Okay, so I think the catechism is dead on here when it says all mankind. Okay, so that, that includes everyone, obviously. And so what I hope to do this morning is to explain from the Bible why it is true that there are no exceptions when it comes to the imputation of Adam's rebellion to all of humanity. So if you look there on your notes... Let's deal with the first issue that Scripture clearly teaches, and that is that all people are sinful before God. And we're going to look at a bunch of different passages with that. Yes, David. Um, do we have any extra handouts, Will? Do we have extra handouts? Yep. 
Okay, raise your hand if you didn't get a handout, and uh, Will will hand one out to you. Okay, so let's look at uh, that first point there on your notes. All people are sinful before God. Okay, somebody want to read that passage there in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3? So there's the extensiveness of the effect of the fall. There's none who does good, not even one. Familiar passage. That's the one that Paul quotes in Romans 3. Okay. Somebody go ahead and read this next one. Okay, no one living is righteous before you. Okay, speaks again to that end there. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. Okay. And then Proverbs 20, verse 9, if somebody would like to read that. Okay, good. So, rhetorical question there, obviously. Right? Who can say that? I've made my heart pure. I'm clean from my sin. Right? Nobody can make that statement. Okay, Romans 3, 9 and 10. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Okay, so everybody's under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Okay, and then 1 John 1 8, somebody want to take that? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay. So anybody who would claim that they don't have sin deceives themselves, right? Because all of us have that sin nature. So we recognize from this that all people are sinful before God. And again, this is so important to understand this. The reason for this is not because of the actual transgressions committed by all of us after we are born. Okay? But because it is the imputed guilt and corruption we have received from Adam the representative of all humanity. Okay? And, so that's, and that's what the catechism hit on, that all those actual transgressions proceed from it. Okay? In other words, they're the fruit of that union that we have with Adam. And we've looked at this passage here in Romans 5 a few times, but I want to hit on it again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
Now, certainly every human being is and will be accountable for his or her own individual sinning before God. But the point that Paul is making here is that God appointed Adam as our representative, as our head. And as our representative, he would stand for us and we would be accounted either just or sinful on the basis of his obedience to or his disobedience of God's commands. The point is not that all people sin, though we do, but rather that Adam stood for us so that when he sinned, not only was he judged, but we were judged also. I like the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it when he says this, we inherit, of course, a sinful nature from Adam, but that is not what condemns us. What condemns us and makes us subject to death is the fact that we all sinned in Adam and that we are held guilty of sin. It is our union with Adam, or another way of saying that is being united to Adam, that accounts for all our trouble. End quote. I think that's a a very good statement there. So all of our individual sinning flows from the fact that we are united to Adam by nature. And our individual sinning is not what condemns us before God. What condemns us is our union with Adam. And all of our individual sinning is the fruit of our union with him. And we see that when we look at verses 13 and 14 there. You'll notice at the beginning of verse 13, you have that word for. Okay, For sin indeed was in the world. And that word functions as this ground clause, and it's going to display evidence for what Paul has stated in verse 12. He says in verses 13 and 14 again, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, it's evident as you read the scriptures. From the time of Adam in Genesis 3 until the time of Moses and the giving of the law in Exodus 20, that people are dying. That death is reigning throughout the earth. But we know that death comes because of sin, and since sin is not counted against people where there is no law, why were people dying before the giving of the law in Exodus 20? Right? That's the argument that Paul is making here. So you have this act in Genesis 3, you have the giving of the law in Exodus 20, and Paul makes the statement here, right? Sin is not counted where there is no law, right? So if you don't know, you know, right? So you're just blazing down the road going 100 miles an hour. It's like, this is great and everything, and cop pulls up behind you, and he's like, speed limit's 55. It's like you rightly get a ticket, right? But if you're in a place where there's no speed limits, you can just fly down the road. You can go as fast as you want, right? Because there's nothing holding you back. There is no law that states you have to go this fast. And so Paul's making the argument here, from the time of Adam to Moses, people are still dying, but the law had not been given. Why? Why are they dying? And the point that Paul is making is this. Death came to all men during that time, not by reason of their own actual transgression or individual sin, but because of their involvement in the sin of Adam. Because by nature, 
they are united to him. You see, death reigned over them even though they had not violated a clear expressed command like Adam did back in Genesis when he was commanded by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what Paul is referring to when he says that they had not transgressed or sinned like Adam. So people were still dying even though they had no expressed command from God because of their union with Adam and that sin of Adam being imputed to them. And that's the reason that people die today. There's a union that all of humanity has with him and in his sin, we all sinned. Okay? And then we see, it's just kind of a side note, but why, why then the law, right? Paul points to that in Galatians. Why, why then the law? Why did the law come in? Well, it was to expose what was already there. Right? So the law comes in like a magnifying glass, as Paul says in Romans 7. I had not known sin, but by the law. And then when the law came, sin became what it really is. It was through the law that I had an awareness and knowledge of that sin that was within me that prior to that I tried to suppress and keep undetected. But the law came in to shine the light of God's holiness upon the human heart to reveal the sin that is there that a person might cry out to the Savior and be forgiven. So as we've looked at in the past, Scripture makes plain the reality that we are born sinful because of our union with Adam. And I want to just bring a couple of passages to light again for us so that this thought is very clear in our minds. Okay. Psalm 51.5, if somebody would like to read that for us. Okay, right, David's confession there in, in Psalm 51 after being confronted by Nathan the prophet of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And, and David's looking at these acts, right, and recognize this is deeper than my act against Bathsheba, my act against Uriah. There's something deeper than that. And this is the reality. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is rooted deeply. Job 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Okay? And since Adam is our father, and since he broke the commandment, and therefore becoming unrighteous or unclean, Right? Everybody that comes forth from him comes out unclean. And who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Hence the reason the virgin birth of Christ is so important. John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay, so being born in and of itself, is a good thing, but it, we also come in under the curse. Okay, we must be, this is where Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, we must be born again. Somebody want to take that passage there in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay, so we were we were by nature, right? So Paul writing to the the, the Ephesians here. We were by nature children of wrath, and then he expands it out. It's not just you, Ephesians, right? It's not just an issue that you guys have, that you were dead in your sins. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, right? So he encompasses all people within that. So the scripture testifies to the universality of sin. But I want you to think about this also. Our own consciences testify to the reality of the universality of sin, and and we see this through the history of religion, or the history of religions. The question that Job's friend Bildad, quote unquote friend, asked him, how can a man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Are really questions that are in the heart of all people. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology says this, The heathen religions testify to a universal consciousness of sin and of the need of reconciliation with a supreme being. There is a general feeling or sense that, in their case, the gods are offended and must be propitiated in some way. Right? And missionaries testify to this all the time, right? They go into these unreached peoples, and what do you have? Some type of sacrificial system set up, whatever that may look like, to try to appease their God or their gods or their own consciences, right? So it's written on the heart of every man. I've got to do I'm not right with God, whoever this God may be, right? And you've, you probably saw that in your own life. I don't know if you saw that in your own life, but I saw it in my life. I was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, you know, there's just this sense of duty that I always felt like I had. I remember being up in college, which was not a good experience, and I remember one year I gave up beer for Lent. I thought that this would make me right with God. I thought, you know, these 40 days, I'm, I'm not going to drink any beer. I'm not, not going to be heading out to parties and everything like that. And I remember feeling this sense of my own righteousness. It's like, yeah, look at, these, look at these people around here. They're going out, and as soon as Lent was over, I was unfortunately right back in it. But, but there was this sense within me that I have to do something to make myself right with God. Burkhoff goes on to say, he says, there's a universal voice of conscience testifying to the fact that man falls short of the ideal and stands condemned in the sight of some higher power. Altars reeking with the blood of sacrifices, often the sacrifices of dear children, repeated confessions of wrongdoing, and prayers for deliverance from evil, all point to the consciousness of sin. There is this universal awareness of sin, and mankind from the very beginning has been doing all that they possibly can to try to appease their so-called God and quiet their condemning conscience. I think that's an excellent statement. Okay, So are all people sinful before God? Absolutely. The scripture is clearly testified to that reality. The conscience of man testifies 
to that reality as well. All right, any comments or questions before we move on to that second point there on your, on your notes? Okay, all right, let's move on then. So this next question segues off of the previous reality that all people are sinful before God. And we are so from conception due to our natural union with Adam. When people think about possible exceptions to the guilt of Adam being imputed to his offspring, this category of people that you see here usually comes up as a potential exception. And it's a sensitive question, I understand. But it's one that I believe the scripture clearly answers. And the question there on your notes is this. Are infants guilty before they commit actual sins? Some would hold that scripture teaches an age of accountability before which young children are not counted guilty before God. But I believe the passages that we've just looked at, as well as many others, about the inherited sin that we've received from Adam indicate that even before birth, children have a guilty standing before God and a sinful nature that not only gives them a tendency to sin, but also causes God to view them as sinners. Psalm 58 verse 3 is one of those passages. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They come forth speaking lies. As has been rightly stated previously in this class, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that from conception. And we realize that a child's sinful nature manifests itself very early, certainly within the first two years of a child's life, right? as anyone who has raised children or spent any amount of time around them can affirm, right? You don't have to teach your child to rebel against you, right? It's like, you're just perfect. Do something wrong, right? No, that doesn't happen. Right? Just constant state of correction that's happening there. But then what do we say about this sensitive question of infants who die before they're old enough to understand and believe the gospel. Can they be saved? And here we must say that if such infants are saved, it cannot be on their own merits or the basis of their own righteousness or innocence, since they have none, but it must be entirely on the basis of Christ's redemptive work and regeneration by the work of the Holy Spirit within them. That much we can definitely say. Salvation is through Christ and through Christ alone. The scriptures clearly lay that forth. Jesus states in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Wayne Grudem, I think, makes a good point in his systematic theology when he says it certainly is possible for God to bring regeneration to an infant even before he or she 
is born. And he cites the example of John the Baptist, as we see in Luke 1. Speaking of John the Baptist, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Remember the account of Mary coming to see Elizabeth, and at the sound of Mary's voice, the babe leaps in in the womb. So God is able to save infants, and what we say, what we would say is an unusual way, and that is apart from hearing and understanding the gospel, by bringing regeneration to them very early, sometimes even before birth. But we must, however, affirm very clearly that this is not the usual way for God to save people. Salvation usually, in most cases, occurs when someone hears and understands the gospel and then places trust in Christ. But in unusual cases like John the Baptist, God brought salvation before this understanding. How many infants does God save in this way? Well, Scripture doesn't clearly lay that forth, so we can't make a definitive statement upon that. And this is where we have to trust the sovereignty of God. Uh, Where scripture is silent, we don't want to go beyond the bounds of that and try to bring in our own reasoning about what God should or, or shouldn't do. We simply have to leave that matter in the hands of God and we trust him to be what he has revealed himself to be, both just and merciful. So if they are saved, it will be on the basis, it will not be on the basis of any merit of their own or any innocence that we might presume that they have. If they are saved, it will be on the basis of Christ's redeeming work. And their regeneration will be by God's mercy and grace. Because salvation is always because of mercy and not because of our merits. Okay? So I think we can definitely say all of that definitively because I think the scriptures clearly testify to that reality. Um, Okay, any questions or comments on that? Yes. So 1 Corinthians 7 is, yeah, that, that aspect of uh, staying married to an unbeliever uh, because if you don't, you know, you're, you're, it says your children won't be holy. Um, how we would see that is the aspect, and this is where our Presbyterian brothers would just be coming in right now and they'd just be like, this is a settled issue, guys. I don't even know why you're discussing it, right? They're, they're under the covenant from birth, bingo. You know, that's, that's all there is. So it's a much easier question to answer from them, even though I think they're wrong. Um, so that 1 Corinthians 7 passage, there's an aspect of a child being raised in a Christian home that there is a blessing there. There is the gospel proclamation there. So there is an aspect of the holiness of God within that household. And I believe that's the interpretation that is the correct one. That aspect of your children will be holy by the environment that they are in. That one spouse is believing and therefore is under the blessing of God, and that child certainly reaps some of, some of the benefits of that. And you can see this within just the practical daily living of Christians. A child raised in a Christian home 
oftentimes is in a much better position than a child who is not raised in a Christian home and they're susceptible to all kinds of different things. So that's the blessing, the covering, I think, that the child is under, even though I don't believe they're under the new covenant yet until they repent and believe the gospel. So there's an aspect that that child is blessed by God to be in that environment. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is, is referring to. Okay, Chris. Yeah. Yes. example of that. Grudem kind of brings that out there. Um, but yeah, definitely you don't want to make that a blanket statement over all the, all the other. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, and again, I think this is where you, you have to go back to the character of God and trust that the judge of all the earth will do right. Yes, I mean, whatever, you know, pronouncement he makes. It's, I understand it. It's difficult. Uh, it's not an easy thing, um, especially from a pastoral perspective. Um, and trying to counsel through a situation like that. Because that question inevitably arises in somebody's heart, right? Where is that child or where is my child, whatever the case may be. So it's, it's not an easy one. I'm not trying to uh, downplay that at all. Um, but we can stand upon what God has revealed to us in his word. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. Good questions. Yeah, Lucy. That's a good question as well. Yeah, certainly, certainly would. And I would say that, um, you know, as, as Chris was kind of mentioning, you know, our responsibility as believers is to bring the gospel to all people and um, to trust God with doing what God alone can do in that person's heart. So it certainly becomes a lot more difficult, obviously, in a situation like that, because um, you may not be able to see fruits that would exemplify, oh, yeah, that, that, that is true. But at the same time, you, you may just see a childlike faith. There's a trust. There's a belief in Jesus uh, there. And it can't be manifest in all these different ways because there's you know, not the opportunity to do that. So I wouldn't see it any different than what our responsibility is, is to bring the gospel you know, to, those, to those people uh, in whatever state that they're in. And we trust God to do what, what he alone can. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Definitely. Chris.
Yeah, because we trust that God has, in his sovereign purpose, uh, created that person in such a state, or, or maybe it was circumstances in life that caused them to get to that state, whatever the case may be. But we trust the sovereignty of God, that that person is exactly where God wants them to be. And so God is certainly capable to do all that he wills in a, in a situation like that. So um, there's nothing hindering, right, nothing hindering God from doing what he alone, he alone can. Okay, good. Dean, did you have... Okay, I saw Dean. Uh, I'm switching gears a little bit. Yeah. It's a little bit harder, or long, longer question, but in the beginning you said um, our union with Adam yeah. determined our position. Yeah. Correct. That, that, that's right. That's right. So the second, the second question is uh, a shorter answer to that, and you're exactly right. Was he capable? Yes, he was. How do we know that? Because he did. Okay, one more, and then we got to move on. Jonathan? Um, yeah, I just, I just wanted to add to that. Um, now, when we're talking about righteousness, we, of course, we come up with this, this idea in our head that there's like this goodness floating around, this, this, this bubble of goodness and righteousness, but that's not really a biblical standard. Like a biblical standard of righteousness, uh, it links righteousness to the law of God. Right. So uh, the only way that a person can prove that they have the nature of righteousness is by complete and perfect obedience to God's word. And there is also a righteousness that is revealed apart from the law. And that righteousness right. is revealed apart from the law is evidenced by faith in the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and as far as I see it, those are the only 
to yeah. Yes. Yeah, he was given that period of testing and he proved himself to fail in that and through that the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted as God has laid forth that plan. And the beauty of it is that in Christ, there's no possibility now of falling. Um, and that's the, the blessing that we have of being in, in him rather than being in Adam. Okay, so good, good points. I do have one more point that I need to, uh, to get to. Good questions. Um, the last point there on your notes is this, does our ability or inability limit our responsibility? In other words, does the reality that by nature we can't obey the commands of God excuse us from responsibility to those commands? And the simple answer to that, again, is no. Our inability to respond on our own doesn't negate the fact that we are still responsible before God. And you may remember from our study a few weeks back on the historical views of the imputation of Adam's sin that a man named Pelagius had great difficulty with this concept. He came to the conclusion that if God gave a command to man, then man must be able to perform that command. But let's see what the scripture has to say uh, regarding this. And I want to look specifically at it from the perspective of salvation, since that's the first, the first command that we, we bring to man to repent and believe the gospel. That's the only way they'll be able to obey going forward. It's because of the righteousness of Christ being given to them. So is man able on his own to repent and believe the gospel? And I want to I look at this in the perspective. I've got a bunch of scriptures here. I don't know that we'll get through all of these, but... Um, I want to look at the command of God, right? So the responsibility goes to man. Then we'll look at man's inability to do that. But then the glorious reality as well, that God supplies what he commands to his people, okay? So Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, right? So there's a command going forth. Seek the Lord, Romans 3, 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God, Okay? So there's the command, there's the inability, okay, because of our union with Adam, but here is the glorious reality. And I wanted to add this because it's so, there's so much hope in this third aspect of what God has done for us in Christ. It doesn't really cover the doctrine of sin, we'll hit it a little bit later, but I wanted to, to bring it in. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, right? So seek the Lord while he may be found, no one seeks after God. The Son of Man comes in to seek and to save the lost. What a glorious reality that is. Okay? Another 
trio of verses, 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's the command. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So there's the inability, right? But here's the glorious reality. And when the Gentiles heard this, that the gospel was coming to them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Right? That's the glorious reality. What confidence did you have when you go out and preach the gospel? I'm bringing a message. I'm calling men to repent and believe. They can't do it. Here's my hope. God can and God will. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they believe? Because they were appointed to eternal life before the foundation of the world. Acts 17.30, Paul, you may remember this interaction with those people on the Areopagus. God commands all people everywhere to repent. And then Jesus says in John 14, 17, the spirit of truth, now notice this, whom the world cannot receive. The world can't receive the spirit of truth. Right? So repent and believe the gospel. And you're bringing the truth and the world can't receive it. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. So again, there's the command, there's the inability, here's the glorious reality. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Paul talking to Timothy there about what a servant of the Lord should be like. What, what hope do you have, Timothy, of bringing this gospel to people? Why should your disposition be gentle towards your opponents? Because, Timothy, here's the reality. God may perhaps grant them repentance as he did to you. Okay? Revelation twenty two seventeen. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Romans 9, 15 through 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. So whosoever will, then Romans 9, nobody will. <laughs> doesn't depend on human will or exertion. So what is our hope then? But on God who has mercy. It depends on God who has mercy. That's the hope. John 1.12 Backing up this a little bit, came to his own, his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay? But 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? So he doesn't accept the things, and he's not able to. Right, so there's the inability. He's not able. What's the hope? Here's the hope. But to all who did receive him, why did they receive him? Why did you receive him? 
Because we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's why. All right, so that, that's the hope that we have been given. I think I have one more here. Let me see. Okay, Chris mentioned this passage earlier, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord. Okay? So if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God will save you. No one can say Jesus is Lord. Right? That's not the end of the verse, praise God. Except by the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit regenerating you allows you to confess truly that Jesus is Lord. Maybe you said that, right? So you don't want to get caught up on semantics here and just say, well, I remember saying Jesus is Lord before I got saved. <laughs> right? Because I was raised Roman Catholic and I would have said Jesus is Lord. But I didn't have a clue what that meant. Okay? But then came the reality of the Holy Spirit regenerating me and then for the first time I could truly say, Jesus is Lord. Right? So there, there's the hope that we have been given. And this is the last one. So remember Jesus' interaction here with the rich young ruler? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Right? He goes away, doesn't do that. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what was their response? Who can be saved then? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Okay, So the scriptures clearly lay out. God's confronting people with commands. Man is unable and unwilling to obey those. That's the effect of original sin, but the glorious reality is that God supplies for his people what they can't bring to the table. So hopefully we've been able to see from these texts that man is responsible before God, yet unwilling and unable to obey the command to repent and believe the gospel. And God's holiness after Adam's rebellion, did not change, right? Adam's position may have changed. God didn't change. And therefore, neither his standard for what man needs to be in order to be found acceptable in his sight, right? That didn't change, right? Perfection is still needed. You must be perfect in order to enter into the presence of God. But praise the Lord as we have seen that God has provided what we could never supply, and that is a perfect righteousness that we have been given through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to that we say, Amen. amen. Okay. About three minutes, if anybody has any closing thoughts or questions. Dean. Good. Right. Right. Jesus, do it for us. That's right. 
Good, good, excellent, excellent, very good. And if you, if you, I know I kind of went through those quick, so if you want a copy of the PowerPoint, just give me your email and I'll, I'll send them over to you. Yes. I have, I don't know, actually. That's a good. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and, uh, and close out this morning. Father, we are thankful for your kindness to us, Lord, as we think about who we are by nature, Lord, and what we deserve and what we have been given in this glorious gospel of your Son. Thank you for opening our blind eyes, Lord. Thank you for giving us ears to hear. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, Lord. I pray that we would never take that for granted. And Lord, it would always give us a humble disposition as we interact with those who don't know you, Lord, recognizing that we are no better. Grace has visited us, and I pray that we would live that out for your glory in such a way that would be appealing to a lost world, Lord, that your name would be honored. So please help us to that end. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.